HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly, a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives and careers that provide lessons and inspiration for anyone looking to succeed in any industry. Today, my guest is Naz Riahi. Ha ha, I got it. Uh, who is equal parts marketer and provocateur. <laughs> After a decade of advertising and marketing for a wide variety of clients, from fashion to entertainment, she set her sights on the food world. She created Bitten, a conference that highlights the vibrant diversity of the culinary landscape. The conference started in New York in 2015, and this year has expanded to Boston and L.A. Through highlighting a cross-section of visionary leaders in tech, design, and products, Nas is hoping to disrupt this cozy, cozy world of food. Nas, you've tackled this universe even though you consider yourself an outsider. You've professed to being a non-foodie, though you also list your favorite pizza on the website, which is particularly relevant here since your favorite pizza is at Roberta's, and we are sitting here together at Roberta's. Um, but in any case, I'm particularly struck by the way you've identified yourself as an outsider because you spent a lot of your life as an outsider. You were brought up until the age of nine in Iran and then migrated to Seattle with your mom. Can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances around leaving Iran and then coming here? Sure. Uh, hi, Dana. Thank hi. you for having me on today. <laughs> I, uh, it's funny that you made that connection about me saying I'm a food outsider and my life having spent such so much of my life feeling like an outsider. It's something that actually never occurred to me until you just said it, but you're right. So um, I moved to the U.S. when I was nine and a half as a political refugee with my mother. Um, we lived this really beautiful kind of idyllic life in Iran, at least from the perspective of a child. Uh, we lived in a suburb of Tehran. I was always out playing. My family was around me. We would take these beautiful road trips up to the north. My parents were always having parties. And it was just a complete and utter dream until one day uh, the you know, despite the political climate of the country, which was uh, not easy, especially in the 80s, to live in. Um, the revolution had just happened. I was born right after the revolution. Um, so everything was uh, hunky-dory until one day I was trying to watch Cinderella, and um, the uh, religious police came to our house, um, ransacked everything. Uh, my dad, who's a high-ranking Navy official, had 
you know, wasn't home yet. He got home. They arrested him. They took him away. Um, he was imprisoned for nine months and then um, executed on charges of espionage. It's just tragic, particularly that stark black and white of before and after. You know, I mean, it must make one imagine that what had seemed so dreamy could not have been. And then you live this terrible reality and you hope that can't be. But then you um, then you came to the U.S., um, which must have seemed like you're setting yourself up for another nice, happy life in a suburb or in a city. And you came to Seattle and it wasn't that. Well, I mean, I can't say that I, I thought that that's what it would be. I had no, mm-hmm. as, as a child, as a nine and a half year old, I had no expectations of what it could be. I just knew that there was turmoil, turmoil all around me that I didn't want to leave Iran. I didn't want to leave my grandparents, my friends, my aunts and uncles, um, and that I had to, and that I couldn't ask any questions. I um, had to grow up kind of alone very, very quickly um, because culturally, we do not answer to children, mm-hmm. um, no matter the circumstances. And so I came here, my mom and I came here, my older brother, he's 12 years older than me, was already living here. Um, and we all moved in together in a suburb of Seattle. One of my uncles, who's um, almost like a son to my mom, because he's only about three years older than my brother, came to live with us as well. And it was this sort of weird Frankenstein family, um, you know, with a couple of young 20-something-year-old boys really being the heads of a household when they'd never had to have the responsibility of, you know, uh, my my mother and me, my mother who went from her, you know, father's house to her husband's house to suddenly being alone and in charge of everything in a country that was not her home in a language that she barely spoke. Um, and for me, that came with a lot of challenges as well, both sort of being separated from my family back in Iran, separated from my family here because of the grief that we were all sort of um, enveloped in, Um, and then starting a new school in a new country, um, not speaking a word of English, all of those those things combined. But school seemed to be a particular sore point because those kids were not welcoming, and um, they're... They increased your feeling of isolation and being different. And I feel taught you important lessons that you bring with you today. Yeah, of course. School was very hard. Um, I skipped third grade, meaning that I just didn't go to school for a year between uh, what was happening in Iran and coming here. And I, I went to fourth grade not speaking really a word of English. I think the only words I knew were hello and no English. And... Um, it was brutal. I was living in a suburb of Seattle. I was one of maybe two people of color in the school, um, coming from a very foreign country. Um, and, you know, obviously not speaking the language was not helpful. And I think that in thinking about it now, I realized that I could have withered um, under the pressure and the bullying and kind of the horribleness of that experience. And it was truly horrible from the teachers to the students. I had to go to choir and I was told that I had to sing with the other kids, except that I didn't speak the language. So I didn't know the words to the song. And, you know, that sounds like an actual <laughs> nightmare, like the one that you could have recurring, like they're making me sing, but I don't know the words to the song. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the kids would make fun of me because I was standing there just kind of moving my mouth, kind of trying to figure out what they were the sounds that were coming out of their mouth. And and no one was equipped to deal with it in 1990 in Bellevue, Washington. Um, and, you know, it's really, really funny because, like, at the end of the school year, I had learned enough English um, that I could communicate pretty well. Um, and one of our assignments that year was to write a story or a book. Like, all the kids got to publish a book. And so I wrote my story in Farsi because I didn't speak English well enough yet, and my brother translated it. And I'm a writer. I've always been a writer since I was very young. Um, and it was submitted and the ESL teacher told me that I had not done the work and that it wasn't my original work and that it was too good to be my original work. And it was just like this one thing that I finally did and you're still saying it's not good enough, it's not yours, you're lying. And it just devastated me, it crushed me. Um, And so that experience really toughened me up, all of that. I I could either stand up for myself, which has sort of been my mantra, often um, not to my benefit, 
uh, or I could let people kind of walk all over me. Well, it's good that you've stood up for yourself. I just want, and, um, and that's helped propel you forward in the past jobs you've had. And I'm sure in the, the curtain job that you've set up for yourself. I, just, I wanted to talk a little bit about the notion of being an outsider in the food world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you were thinking about Bitten, what it was that you were trying to accomplish that you felt wasn't already in, sort of in existence in the food world. Yes. I, being an, and what I mean by being an outsider is that I, you know, I, I sometimes go to food events, and now I know a lot of people, but, but even in the beginning, everyone seemed to know each other. It was always the same people going to the same events, which is wonderful. It's a really rich, tight-knit passionate community, but I felt that food was interesting and affected every single person on the planet um, to some degree. You know, access to food, lack of access to food, its environmental implications, the technology that we're using to move food into the future. Um, And I thought it was really strange that you know, what I guess in marketing jargon you would call the creative class wasn't interested in the food space. And, um, And also what I mean by like the fact that I'm not a foodie is I cannot tell you what cool restaurant to go to. I can tell you my five favorite restaurants, but I'm, my finger is not on the pulse of the hottest chef or the hottest restaurant. Um, I read about things and I get excited about things and I email uh, people who are doing interesting things, but never with the intention to be the first to know about something. Um, Do you feel like there's an uh, over-attention to the what's hot, what's new, what's cool what you know that everybody talks about the same five things or I think it's human nature everybody wants to belong to something and I think that being an expert um, makes you automatically someone for other people to look up to and look to Uh, and so I think it doesn't matter what industry you're in there's a lot of focus on food again because it is this common thread that ties so many people together so I, I talk about this with Instagram for example you can be a fitness influencer or you can be a music influencer or you can be a fashion person and you're still Instagramming photos of the food that you eat and the restaurant that you go to and so I think there is this extra focus and scrutiny of the food space because of that um, it just naturally lends itself to that so let's talk about the idea of starting your own business, which is such a huge leap for anyone. Uh, And what led you to want to start your own business? This interview is not for the faint of heart. Um, (laughs) I I worked in a creative agency, and uh, I experienced... um, a lot of really great things there. I learned a lot. I met amazing people. I worked with incredible clients. I executed really awesome projects that I'm so proud of. Uh, but in the backbone of that was just this astounding, exhausting gender discrimination. Um, and at a certain point, um, being the person who will always stand up for myself, it became too much and I was fired. And when I was fired, I was devastated. I'd given four years of my life. I brought in huge clients. Um, I just couldn't believe that it was happening. I I really have this naive sense that if you do the right thing, things will work out. (laughs) And it's very childish. It's this, I think I told you, I have this like, you know, I believe in magic in this insane (laughs) way, right? And, And it didn't work out. And it was embarrassing and it was even though I hadn't done anything um, and which is why I I talk about it because I think if I had done something I would have felt too guilty and horrible Um, and so when I left I I really just needed a break from working for anyone else Um, and I thought okay why is it that like all of these really when you look around all of these men have these amazing huge businesses we need more women running their own business what am I interested in I love the food space it's super innovative it's super creative I'm going to do something in the food space. And the desire to work for myself and build my own brand and do it the way that I wish other people had done it with me um, was what led me to start Bitten. And so how is it that you want to work with other people? I think that's such an interesting you know, approach to starting your own business as an opportunity to do good in that way. With a good heart. You know, I think I'm not competitive with anyone else. I want my business to succeed. But, and I say this, especially with women in food, uh, another woman's success is my success and my success is hers. Um, I want people that are passionate about what they're doing to work for me and I want to give them the freedom to do what they do. I don't want to micromanage anyone. Um, I don't want to... 
you know, negotiate and go back and forth about someone's salary. I want to pay them what they're worth, um, even if that means that I'm going to make a little bit less money. All of those things are important. Money is part of the stress of opening your own business. And, yes. I, and I feel like there were some things that you sold in order to, you know, start this and you've made sacrifices. What are the sacrifices and how do you rationalize them in your mind? Or um, feel good about them. Rationalizing sounds maybe negative. Well, okay, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll answer that. But first, I have to tell you that a few years ago, Refinery Twenty Nine did an interview with me, and they asked me what sacrifices I'd made, and I said horseback riding, which is like <laughs> so random because a, I never had enough money to be like a regular horseback rider. <laughs> it just kind of made it sound like I was living this lavish life, and I had to give up this very like luxurious thing. I don't know why I said that. I think because. I wish I could horseback ride every day. Um, what did I sacrifice? I've sacrificed, I, I have, uh, you know, some days I wake up and I'm so happy and some days I wake up and I'm so sad. And I think I've sacrificed that sort of um, evenness in my mood because uh, it's not that I'm just going to work and someone is going to give me a paycheck every two weeks and I'm going to see colleagues and I'm going to go out for drinks with them after work. The loneliness of working on a business alone um, that I have intentionally not raised any funding for, uh, and so I don't have any full-time employees or colleagues, um, is a huge sacrifice, I think. Um, I lived in a 300-square-foot studio in Bushwick when I first moved back to Brooklyn and launched this because I couldn't um, you know, afford uh, a high rent. And now that I live in Fort Greene, which is my dream neighborhood, and I have this apartment that is not like my dream apartment, but it's in my dream neighborhood, you know, I Airbnb and airbed in my living room sometimes. Um, and it's okay. And I think the thing that I realized in this journey is that I, A, I don't have to have an overnight success. There is no such thing as an overnight success. I've lasted about three years and it's been profitable and it's been successful and it's been fun. And I don't know where it's going, but I have a good feeling. That's to go with your gut, which is the foundation of many businesses, seems to have paid off here. And the idea that there was more that could be done in the food space that takes advantage of a different part of the creative class uh, has been incredibly compelling. Um, you've talked about this, the stress associated with opening your own business or creating your own way. How do you deal with that stress or how do you even out the emotional unevenness? Have you come up with ways to tackle that or is the way to tackle it to go through the waves and just come, you know, at some point, you know, you're going to be on the beach and it's going to be sunny. <laughs> I'm actually not sure if I'll ever in the near foreseeable future be on the beach, although I really hope that I can be. But I think, um, you know, yeah, I want to say that I exercise and I meditate. I, I often think about meditating and I also <laughs> equally think about exercising and I don't do it. Um, I have to say that I think that when I'm going through the low points, I've really started to say to myself, remember that other low point and how it ended? This low point's going to end too. And that's it. And it doesn't mean that it makes me feel any better, but it reminds me that, okay, I just have to wait till tomorrow. Um, and the other thing that I do is I'm like, you know how, you know how every neighborhood kind of has a walker and it's usually like an older kind of strange man. And he just like, you always see him walking. Like I used to kind of be like, Oh, look at that walker. Look at that walker in the different neighborhoods I lived in. And like, suddenly I'm the walker in Fort Greene. Like, <laughs> I'm the weird lady who's like always walking around with her dog. It doesn't matter what time. And actually one of my neighbors the other day saw me and she goes, you know, she's, she's probably, she's been in the neighborhood since the seventies, I think. And, and she goes, you know, that that's a very lucky dog. <laughs> <laughs> a very well exercised dog. Very. And so I, you know, I walk and I, I, Sometimes think about the business intentionally. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I listen to Rachel Maddow's show, and, and it helps. You've talked and written about the idea of failure and how you think it's important to talk about failure. I've talked to many women entrepreneurs, and they say, it's so hard. No one talks about how hard it is, and they find that a frustration because everyone should know not to stop them from doing something hard, but mm -hmm. just to know that they're not alone in how hard starting a business can be. 
Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts around failure and powering through it? Yes. I, um, so failure is interesting. And, and, you know, you and I have had this conversation, and you have actually a really fantastic perspective on it, um, which you should write about. <laughs> but uh, I think that I have failed in everything I've done. Literally, there's nothing I've done that I haven't failed in. My biggest failure is my failure in love. Like, I'm actually writing a book about it right now. But it's, um, it's uh, you know, at least I tried. And at least I've tried and tried my hardest. And sometimes my failures are huge because I really go after everything with my heart and my gut. Okay, and- so what's a really... So if you'd like to know my personal point of view on failure, <laughs> I don't believe in failure as a good drug. I think the idea that you fail and that is somehow a success because it moves you on to the next phase is a mistake. And I think most people who perceive failure are just not looking at the experience in the right way. So that's what I think about failure. But you're, when you say you've had a huge failure, what is that? Like, what's your huge failure? Aside, let's take love out of the Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. So like, for example, uh, getting fired from my job, Mm -hmm. I consider that a failure. I should, I believe that I by being honest and doing good work and standing up for myself, I should have been able to change things. Um, Or maybe I didn't approach it the right way. Maybe I should have changed my language. I I could have done something. But then at the end of the day, I realized that if I hadn't been fired, I never would have found it bitten. And I'm so much happier now, right? Um, And I guess it's less that you need failure um, than that you need to talk about failure because, you know, people, I have people who come to me and I'm so grateful for this, but people actually reach out to me and ask for my advice and ask to go out to coffee. And they're shocked when I tell them that, you know, I put a lot of stuff on my credit card. You know, I decided not to take any investors. So that's what I have to do. But I believe in it. And I believe that I'm my own first, you know, uh, line of credit, so <laughs> and American Express. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I would say because being fired led you to something great, that you've definitely gotten something good from what was a very very difficult experience. But let's talk about people who inspire you. Ooh. And uh, there's a moment in every show when I ask guests to read something that they've brought. So I'd love to hear some words from someone who inspires you. Oh man, this was so, so hard because there are so many. Um, and I've listened to every episode of your show now and (laughs) I, you know, love Mary Oliver and I actually have a bunch of Mary Oliver poems memorized. I thought I'd do Mary Oliver. I do this, I do that. So I just saw, um, the documentary on James Baldwin called I am not your Negro. And I believe that this is my public service announcement. It is every single person's responsibility to go and see this film. It is your duty. And I was so inspired and so touched and so heartbroken by all of it that I thought, how is it possible that I've never actually read any James Baldwin? And so I picked up uh, his memoir, which he wrote in his early 30s, I believe, uh, called Notes of a Native Son, just putting on my glasses. Um, And so I'll read, I kind of wanted to read like one like tiny quote and then um and then a larger quote uh like that's only about a a page so the first quote is very relevant to the time that we're living in um which is the making of an american begins at the point where he himself rejects all other ties any other history and himself adopts the vesture of his adopted land um and of course i don't fully agree with that but i think what's interesting in this story is that every American is from somewhere else, Um, or in that quote. And I think that's something to think about. He also has a very wonderful quote about the fact that he loves this country, which is why he feels that he can criticize it and that it is his responsibility to criticize it. So, um, and then I'm going to read you this passage, but I have to say, as someone who didn't speak English, this was another horrible thing in school, is every day that we had, like, reading, I, I would sit there sweating that the teacher was going to call on me to read something out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't oh, be able to do it. Okay. And now you can. And now, well, we'll see. Another success. <laughs> the jury's still out. We'll see. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. <clears throat> and, and this is also relevant to me being a writer, which is why I chose it. So 
Any writer, I suppose, feels the world into which he was born is nothing less than a conspiracy against the cultivation of his talent, which attitude certainly has a great deal to support it. On the other hand, it is only because the world looks on his talent with such a frightening indifference that the artist is compelled to make his talent important, so that any writer looking back over even a short span of time as I am here, um, uh, for, as I am here forced to assess, finds that the things which hurt him and the things which helped him cannot be divorced from each other. He could be helped in a certain way only because he was hurt in a certain way. And his help is simply, to, um, is simply to be enabled to move from one conundrum to the next. One is tempted to say that he moves from one disaster to the next. When one begins looking for influences, one finds them by the score. I haven't thought much about my own, not enough anyway. I hazard that the Kim, King James Bible, the rhetoric of the storefront church, something ironic and violent and perpetually understated in Negro speech, and something of Dickens's love for Breverum, have something to do with me today, but I wouldn't stake my life on it. Likewise, innumerable people have helped me in many ways. But finally, I suppose the most difficult and most rewarding thing in my life has been the fact that I was born a Negro and was forced, therefore, to affect some kind of truce with, the re with this reality. Truce, by the way, is the best one can hope for. It's beautiful. And tell me, you have implored people to see the movie just in a sentence, why do they need to see it? Oh, man, in a sentence. <laughs> um, because uh, we live in a never, seemingly never-ending racist society, and people are finally kind of paying attention to that, and this film is very black and white about it, and it is our duty as Americans to see it. And with that, we're going to go to a commercial break. You're listening to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, and I have a guest, Naz Riahi. <laughs> I'm just so sure I'm going to butcher that. Riahi. Be right back. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job, and, and obviously it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly. I'm excited to be here with Naz Riahi. I think by the end of this, I'm going to not be worried about mispronouncing your name. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Bitten Conference, which is 
Nas's business. So you have a group of really interesting speakers at each conference you have, whether it's New York, L.A., or Boston. Tell me, how do you find these speakers? At what criteria um, do you have in your own mind when you choose them? I uh, usually find the speakers on my own. I get pitched speakers all the time and people reach out to me. And um, generally, it's not the right fit, which I think is funny because the website really says, you know, what we're doing. And so it, it's interesting when I get a pitch from a publicist that is has nothing to do with what, what, what we're doing. It's just a stage. So they really want to get their client on there. Um, I uh, and, and the few times when I have uh, accepted someone's pitch, it weirdly hasn't like super worked out for me. So where so, do you look for them? Where are you like, what are you looking for? And where do you look? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Uh, the interwebs. I, I, I read a lot. I, I'm reading what all do you read? the time. Uh, all sorts of things. Like, I think the, you know, in, in the food world, like, uh, the Food Tech Connect newsletter is amazing. They're doing, they're, like, killing it. It's my favorite thing. Um, and it's kind of become, like, the New Yorker because they send it out regularly. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to save this and read it later. And now I have, like, ten that I haven't even opened. Um, so it's like another thing to be mad at myself for. Uh, so, uh, so I read a lot. I, if I think a co- company is interesting or a person is interesting, one of the things that I really super duper is important to me and focus on is having um, an equal number of men and women and as much um, you know uh, ethnic and racial diversity as possible on the stage. And I think that I can confidently say that my conference is the only one that does that, um, not just in the food space, but in the conference space. Um, and it's not easy. It is the hardest thing uh, because most companies, and I have a lot of startup folks, most companies are founded by um, white men because most VCs are run by white men and it's a system that perpetuates itself. So what quality are you, are you looking for? Um, so I'm looking for uh, someone who's doing something that inspires me because I think if it inspires me, I'm not that unique. It's going to inspire my audience. And really, like, I love sitting you know, in front of the stage during Bitten and hearing these talks and just being blown away by what people are talking about and the things that they've done. So why don't we talk about your... I know there's no favorites in there, like children, but <laughs> five people who the audience might not have heard of before who you had on your stage and you were so happy to give them a platform. Oh, oh man. You're right. It's so hard. It's so hard. Uh, okay. So one of them is uh, Freya Estreller, um, who is the founder of uh, Ludlow's Cocktails and also with her wife, Cool House Ice Cream. And she gave a very badass practical talk, and it's online at Bitten LA, about the trajectory of starting a CPG business. Um, Consumer packaged goods. Consumer packaged goods. And she, one of the things she said that really resonated with me and I needed to hear on that day at that moment was an overnight success takes five years. And I thought, oh, okay, so I'm three years in. Okay, two more years. <laughs> so you use the people on stage. They're, they're sort of cheerleaders in a strange way because they give Absolutely. you insight that reflects back on the work that you're also doing absolutely 100 percent people who are inspiring me with everything that they do and i look up to um homa dashtaki is a friend of mine and i met her because i invited her to speak at bitten last year in new york and then she's so great i invited her to bitten la she's the founder of white mustache yogurt which is uh persian style yogurt um and uh she talked about uh having to the whole story of how she founded the business is lovely and beautiful. She founded it with her father uh, while they were going through the grief of losing her uncle. Um, and then it became a thing. And then the California Health Department tried to shut her down. And she fought it and she fought it and she fought it until she couldn't fight it anymore. And she moved to New York. So her story That must great. resonate to you, just yeah. being a fighter and standing <laughs> up for what's right. And there's a, yeah. a compatriot doing that same thing. Absolutely. Homa is endlessly inspiring. Um, I mean, I have had so many amazing talks. I I was so grateful and and just honored to have Dorothy Can Hamilton open up my first conference, and she she recently passed away. Uh, what an iconic woman in the food world! Um, and the first thing she said when she got on stage was, "I go to a lot of food events, and I don't recognize anybody here, and that's so exciting." <laughs> um, and Dorothy was the. Uh, founder and president of what was the French Culinary Institute and then became the International 
culinary center and she's um, had a show on heritage she's a great friend of mine um, really wonderful inspiring person agreed yeah and she agreed to be on that stage when she didn't even know who I was nobody knew what Bitten was or who I was and a lot of other people had turned us down and it was you could tell that she was a supporter um, of so many things and I, I'm so grateful. I watch her talk all the time. And she, she talked about the sort of the um, evolution of the chef, like how did the chef become a celebrity? It's a really, really great talk. She definitely had a, a front row seat to yeah. that. When you have asked people, you said some of them turn you down, some of them say yes. Do you have a magic in making people say yes when the answer is possibly no? I feel like that's something that everyone could use some lessons with. Um, confidence and persistence. I really haven't been turned down very many times. I think the first year, one person turned us down and then ended up uh, writing this very eloquent email saying that they wished they had been a part of it, um, and then they were a part of it. So uh, I think confidence is everything, and not pretending to be something you're not. Um, I never pretended like Bitten was this crazy, amazing thing. I said, here's what I'm doing, and this is why I'm passionate about it, and this is why I'm passionate about what you're doing, and I would love for you to be a part of it. And it was genuine. It was 100% true. I think the honesty card is not only very important to you, but important in reaching out to people. I think people can smell inauthenticity a mile away. Mm -hmm. And because of the experiences of your life, honesty is so important. So clearly that's been very helpful in getting people to believe in what you're doing because you believe in it uh, so much. In um, the upcoming Bittens, mm-hmm. can you give us a little preview of people who have said yes? Uh, sure. So uh, we're doing two events that we're really excited about in um, you know in a short time span, actually. We're doing our first ever salon um, in Boston in partnership with Food Future, which started as a collaboration between IDEO, MIT Media Lab, Target, Intel, and now has uh, gone off to be its own thing. They're an amazing group. So we're doing a salon on transparency followed by a half-day workshop the next day, and it's something we've never done before, and we're really excited about it. So wait, so um, what does it mean to do a salon on transparency? So uh, transparency in food is one of the tenets of Food Future. And so we wanted to talk about transparency in food as it relates to different aspects of food. But we're also, for example, bringing in a fashion brand to talk about transparency in the fashion industry. There are so many parallels. And I, I genuinely believe that if you step away from the thing that you're so ingrained in and look at another space, uh, that is going to inform you more than your day-to-day activity um, in, in a lot of ways because it's going to jar you and it's going to surprise you, right? Which is actually the whole point of Bitten. I want to bring people outside of food to the conference to step away from what they're doing every day to be inspired by something new. So um, so that's that. And then on May 12th, we're doing our main stage event in New York City. Uh, you're one of the speakers, which I'm Thank you. thrilled about. I'm so grateful that you said yes. Um, and I like... I'm thinking about it all the time. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure felt. So um, uh, Andre Mack, who is uh, a black winemaker, he's going to speak. And I think that he's going to tell a really, really wonderful story. He's such a smart and, you know, um, uh, interesting guy. Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, it's so funny. Like, I think about this all day and then my brain goes blank when you put me on the spot. Like, um, I have a Julia, Julia Sherman salad for president. Um, she's going to come and speak. Um, uh, I was very happy to have on uh, my podcast. She's an inspiring artist who's taken food as her medium and expresses through the work of artists and salad on the plate, entire sort of visions of a lifestyle and, and a world. Um, will, will the conference change in any way in response to the current political climate? I know that um, you know you had been to the Obama White House. I know that Bitten in its fundamentals is actually uh, diverse and immigrant-friendly, as you are one. <laughs> <laughs> but does it inspire you to change the content in any way, to be more aggressive or... 
Well, um, a few things. Yes, Bitten is founded by me, an immigrant from a Muslim-majority country, um, which is very relevant right now. But um, immigrants make up such a huge part of the food world, um, and that is something that it's tragic and wonderful and you know the fact that ugh, I, I don't know, I get very flustered when I talk about this because it's so important to me um, and I've met so many people who unfortunately are very anti-immigrant um, and and even people who work in the restaurant not not here but like you know in, in my past who worked in the restaurant world and and worked with colleagues who were who were immigrants and and still were so hateful about it. So one thing that we're doing is um, we always donate our profits to a nonprofit nonprofit in the food world that does good good work in the space. Um, we've given to Blue Marble Dreams, Drive Change, LA Kitchen. Um, this year we're just going to straight up give to the ACLU. Um, they are doing good work, um, obviously, and important work. And I know they've raised a lot of money, but they can use all the money they can raise. Um, another thing that we're doing is we're, we are going to have a talk about um, immigrants in the food world. Um, and I am in talks with a chef about that. Um, and I can't say who because it's not confirmed yet. Yeah. Um, and then I also have reached out to a few um, uh, Syrian refugees who have started food businesses here, as I would very much like to get someone um, on stage to talk about that. I think it's a perversely lucky thing that the food of Syria is so delicious. Yes. And the more exposure we can have to it, the better understanding we can have of the uh, culture and the more hopefully we can embrace uh, those immigrants. But wow, it's delicious. The Iranian food, um, yes. the, 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 same, um, the same thing. So another uh, aspect of Bitten is trying to look into the future what food will be, not just what it is today. And since you're in that way a bit of a future forecaster, I was hoping from the work that you've done, if you could distill some of your thoughts about the future of food, I think we'd all be very interested. Um, sure. I think, you know, I, prepare, I prepared for this because you asked me, uh, you told me you were going to ask me for to name a few Things or companies or people that are sort of um, uh, stewarding the future of food, right? And it's nice to give someone prep time, isn't it? <laughs> I'm so grateful, honestly. <laughs> and I was like, ah, how, what? Like, what answer can I? It's it's so much pressure to say, tell us, you know, um, what the future is going to be. And and I could be wrong, but then I thought, you know what? Um, uh, let's take a stab at it. Let's take That's a stab good. at it. So so I actually, and this is going to sound strange, but I think Bitten is the future of food. Um, so that's one of the companies because we bring together such a diverse uh, audience from all different backgrounds. And it's a community that we're building that is inclusive of everyone um, and that encourages conversation. Um, and I think that that's important. The future of food involves not just people working in the food space. Um, Homa, which who I mentioned, Dashtaki, uh, her, the reason I think that White Mustache is the future of food um, and companies like must, White Mustache is because she has this yogurt that flies off the shelf. The demand is there. She's been asked to increase production. She will not do it until she sells more whey. Whey is a toxic byproduct um, to dispose of in the environment of making yogurt, um, and uh, but it's actually a probiotic thing to eat and drink. And so she's been bottling her whey, she's been flavoring it, and she's introduced an entire new product to the supermarket. Um, and I so you're interested from the environmental perspective, from t taking a holistic look mm -hmm. at production, and also for her integrity, the integrity, and also um, introducing, being inventive enough to introduce a new product, which is really challenging to do, especially when you're a tiny startup and you don't have millions of dollars to spend on marketing, educating people about it. Um, it's I, I think more companies need to think about that and do that, and and that will be the future, hopefully. Um, uh, cannabis is we can't not talk about cannabis uh, because a it's just such a huge industry in terms of dollars. Um, it's entertainment and food is entertainment, right? Um, and it's also uh, you know it has so many medicinal uses as uses as well. So um, there is so much still potential there, and I think that that is going to be huge in in so many different ways. Um, bugs. I think about this all the time. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a pescatarian, but I would eat bugs. But I'm, you know, not like 
looking to eat them. Um, (laughs) And I think that's where a lot of people are, right? So what are the companies that are going to open the door and introduce people? Two of our speakers last year, Julia and Lucy, are the founders of a company called Troublemakers, Inc., And they actually were design students, and they took a design and user experience approach to this problem of um, getting people used to eating bugs, which is a much more sustainable source of protein um, than cattle. what was the design solution? I think that's Um, interesting. Yeah, so uh, they designed a product um, called Critter Bitters, and it's bitters made out of crickets. um, And they think, okay, you can put a drop of this in your bourbon. Um, and if you can have it in your bourbon, then maybe here you can actually eat a cricket. And and they've done experiments where they've had, you know, people have a few drinks with critter bitters in it, and then they'll bring, um, a, you know, a tray of toasted crickets, and, and people are more willing to eat them. So it's, it's a gateway bug. Total use. Yeah. Um, and then finally, algae. Uh, you know, algae is interesting. It's a highly sustainable food source. It's um, really great for the environment because it creates a natural natural barrier reef and all of these other um, sea creatures. Uh, you can live off of it and thrive in environments where there's algae. Um, it's used in skincare. It's used in cooking oil. Um, there's so much potential. There's a guy named Bren Smith who is the founder of this organization called Greenwave. And um, he builds vertical algae farms um, and actually has uh, the design of his farms are open source. So anyone can take it um, and either copy it or improve on it. And he thinks the more algae farms we have, the better. Where's his algae farm? And then what happens to the algae once it's farmed? Oof. Uh, so <laughs> where is it? I think it's in Long Island, but I could okay. be mistaken. Um, I really want to go out on the boat with him. Uh, but he... Uh, So I know that he was doing a partnership with Google um, because Google really is thinking a lot about how to make, you know, how to help people, how to facilitate the ease of eating more healthy and more sustainably. Um, And so I know that Bren, from what I understand, was um, supplying algae to the chefs at Google um, and they were experimenting with how to incorporate it into food. That sounds like a great great experiment a little slimy so we've got you know <laughs> crunchy and slimy and that's yeah. our fu- that's the future of our food system people cannabis <laughs> I know. Well, you smoke enough weed then you can have the crunchy things and the slimy things and it all tastes good it's all it's all good um okay so this is the moment in the show when i ask you to pay it forward you are a successful woman in the food industry is there another woman who you would like to nominate into the Hall of Dames, which is a Hall of Fame for culinary women? There are so many, but I've been thinking a lot about my friendship with uh, Kim Chow and Amanda Dell, who are the founders of, or the co-organizers of Food Book Fair. Um, They are amazing women in the food world putting on this event that spans multiple days. I don't know how they do it um, purely for the passion of it and for bringing people together. And it is not easy. And, and even though I work alone uh, over the last year, I've become really close to them and consider them my friend. And it's just my friends. And it's just so nice to have that kinship with someone who understands what you're doing and is equally passionate, but also they are both very politically active. Um, and that's been a really great part of it, too. There are so many women in food right now who are not just doing amazing things in food, but also tying it back to what's happening um, politically. And uh, tell us about the, the book fair, because they highlight everything from teeny tiny books. I think that they shine a light on um, interesting authors. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. So they have readings and signings and dinners and um, and panels and workshops. They really kind of do it all. And they have this thing that is so much fun called the Foodioticals, uh, where all of these – and for some reason there are like a – trillion food magazines that's like like you i know, wonder like, why <laughs> yeah right but like it's like super random things like that there's a magazine on fermentation there are like three um uh, magazines about gay culture and food there's fashion and food there's there's so many amazing subsets of food and so um it is really so much fun to walk through the foodie articles and meet these magazine publishers and pick up copies of the magazine um yeah Fantastically inspiring. Well, I want to thank you. Today, my guest has been Naz Riahi of Bitten. This is Dana Cowan and Speaking Broadly. I, 
invite you to follow my adventures on uh, FW Scout as well as at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. Uh, Nas, do you want to share some of your handles? Oh, yes. So uh, the Bitten handles on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are at This Is Bitten. And my personal handles are at Nas Riahi, R I A H I, and Nas with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I, Z sounds right. And I just wanted to thank my engineer today, David Tadishor. It's awesome. All of my shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love it if you would subscribe or give me feedback. People, I need feedback. I want someone to go on my Instagram, go to Speaking Broadly, comment, tell me about if you're learning something, if you want to learn something different. I would love to hear from you. I also, I used to love snail mail. You know, I would always get home and be so excited to open snail mail. And now I've transferred that obsession with opening things to um, Instagram. So communicate. I will, you know, share your thoughts on air. Um, Maybe even next Wednesday when I'll be back with another episode of Speaking Broadly. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.